Zombie Coder, where we believe less is more and worse is better. This is once again Andrew, the lead undead software engineer, speaking from a small family homestead in the Midwest. This week's podcast is going to be on the subject of Death March projects. And as a forward warning, there is likely to be some foul language and general PG-13 or R rating as far as my topic of discussion goes today. This is definitely one of those things that I can end up on a little bit of a rant on. It is, well, you might see some typical nerdage. Uh, hopefully not too bad, but I do want to put that disclaimer because I am going to be using some salty language. So that said, why talk about Death March projects this week? And the answer to that is, well, it's one of those things uh, that as topics in this podcast seem to go, it came up a few times and uh, actually in some discussions I had with some younger engineers and some discussions I've had with uh, friends going through some current uh, trials and tribulations in their professional careers. So let's start off with what exactly is a Death March project? It's kind of one of those obvious things when you hear it. I would be surprised if you didn't immediately know what I was talking about, even if you couldn't necessarily give it a proper formal definition. Indeed, one of the issues with Death March projects is actually recognizing when you are in one. And without some sort of framework to operate within, that can be difficult. Personally, I'm not a fan of hyperbolic uh, definitions or hyperbole in general. The reality is that we as software engineers are not likely going to have to deal with a forced prisoner of war march uh, from one camp to another that actually takes a death toll uh, as far as people losing their lives. However, there are times when from just a mental mindset, that lack of energy, that feeling of a depression or despair can come in a project, in a software project. So as a formal sort of definition, Edward Jordan, I think I said that name right, uh, he wrote a book uh, earlier um, in the, I want to say early 2000s called Death Marches, and he defined it as any project whose project parameters exceed the norm by at least 50%. Uh, specifically, things like if you were to take a standard schedule estimate for that project or what you would expect a reasonable schedule for that project to be, and you halved it, uh, then you have the makings of a Death March project. A, another uh, definition, and this is from the Project Management Conference uh, paper there, uh, they basically kind of repeated that definition, but they also added some kind of qualifiers or things to watch for. And one of those was a project that has the ability to change company culture. Now, by the end of this presentation, I actually hope to give what I consider to be a better definition than any I've really seen. It's my own personal definition. And well, maybe somebody else has said it, but I, I want to say that it is at least unique to me. Um, it came from my own brain and my own experience. So hopefully it is uh, valuable to others as a framework to operate under. And my personal definition, as you will see, has a lot more to do with the idea of changing company culture than any real kind of standard metric. 
So to sort of develop this definition, let's take a look at a few of what I would consider solid examples of death march projects. The first that I'm going to kind of talk about is, surprisingly enough, a project that many people would say was a resounding success. And that is the release or launch of the original iPhone. Now, why am I calling this a Death March project? Well, I'll put a link into the show notes of uh, some interviews done and kind of a, a behind-the-scenes look at the release of the iPhone. But without getting too far into the weeds, the summary of this is the iPhone release held an immense personal cost to many developers. In fact, one of the quotes in that article is, there were a great many divorces caused by the iPhone. And you kind of take a look at it, and there was a lot of stress involved, and a lot of people ended up leaving Apple over the release of that particular product. Now, if you want details on that, I'd recommend reading the book. It really is an interesting story as the tech industry goes, especially as important as the iPhone was in the history of tech up till today. Now, the next story that I'd like to discuss is one told by the spouse of somebody working at Electronic Arts. Now, this story is fairly old, but I want to discuss it because it is kind of the classic formula for how a Death March project tends to go. Well, at least in my experience. So this was a blog post published a long time ago, and it was written by well, a very knowledgeable uh, wife, because she too was a coder. Uh, she, or at least a, a professional, I don't know if she was a coder, but she did work in the industry. And uh, from the description, I'm imagining she was rather technical. Um, in any case, her husband uh, took a job at EA. And as happens with new jobs, you have that nice honeymoon period where you are happy and the employer's happy and you're put on a nice uh, project that might be ramping up or at least isn't overly crazy yet. Well, after a little bit of time, the project management requested working a little bit of overtime to help make up or prevent crunch period. And this consisted at the time of one extra day a week. So you have somebody now working 48 hours, you know, just a little bit of overtime in the grand scheme of things. And they said, okay, here's this fixed deadline for when we're going to do this. And then that deadline got extended. And after that deadline was extended, they eventually said, well, you know, okay, we're, we're still needing more because we're not necessarily sure we're going to make our project timeline. So can you move from eight hours a day, six days a week to 12? So now you have a fairly substantial amount of overtime. And they kind of said, you know, this is going to be temporary. We're not going to do this too long. And again, they had a, a date in mind. And that date was extended and extended. And finally, it hits the period of real crunch time. And at this point in time, they're asking people to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. So to be at work from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day of the week without fail. Now, I'll quote uh, from the blog entry here for a second. 
Uh, this is, again, the, the spouse of the uh, person working at, at Electronic Arts at the time. The stress is taking its toll. After a certain number of hours spent working, the eyes start to lose focus. After a certain number of weeks with only one day off, fatigue starts to accrue and accumulate exponentially. There is reason why there are two days in a weekend. Bad things happen to one's physical, emotional, and mental health if these days are cut short. The team is rapidly beginning to introduce as many flaws as they are removing. Now, to EA's credit, I'm not really a big fan of them, but this was a long time ago, and my understanding is there has been a degree of improvement as regards uh, working at EA in particular. The video game industry, if you're interested in getting into it, it is still something of a... well, a shit show. It is not a place that I would like to be as uh, somebody that well, values my free time. Um, man, just imagine working seven days a week, uh, nine to ten. There's not time to do anything else after that. Like I have worked close to that a handful of times in my life uh, as far as uh, overtime is concerned. Um, and uh, it eats you up like... Uh, working around the clock like that, it, it is just not uh, good uh, for your mental uh, health at all. Now, for the last project discussion, I'd like to talk about uh, my own story. And this was a project that I was actually really proud of when I started. And my pride would later give way uh, to despair and angst. What happened on this particular project? Well, it started off with just not enough people for the task at hand, not enough resources for the task at hand, and it was very unfortunately my first time attempting to lead a project. So when I talk later on about the failures and reasons for projects that are death marches, um, I am guilty of a lot of sins I will be discussing, and that is uh, something that I would hope that uh, by listening to this podcast, if you're ever in a managerial role, you might be able to avoid or at least understand what's going on on the project yourself. The first real issue that the project I was working on had was management that did not have the financial resources to actually successfully build the project. Uh, we were attempting to do something that really needed a substantially larger budget than we had, and we were essentially operating on a shoestring. Uh, the project itself really needed to have a more a senior level electrical engineer. The project involved design and buildup of PCBs, and uh, we had a guy that was fresh out of college, and he was immensely talented, but he had somebody managing him who had no idea how to spec out an electrical engineering project. The other real uh, problem was a lack of realism for management. Now, that obviously goes hand-in-hand hand with attempting a project that you're not uh, financially capable of doing. And, and that kind of led to a bunch of bad decisions that were penny smart pound foolish. So we did things uh, to cut corners and save cost 
that in the long run ended up costing a lot of money. Now, as the project went on, eventually I ended up um, resigning from the project and kind of moving off onto my own area there. And then later on, uh, due to that ongoing project, I ended up leaving the company altogether. The, uh, the end result of that was very unfortunately, the company, it, it's still around today, but about a year and a half after I left, everyone associated with that project was laid off and in a very a very harsh way um, they were all let go with no severance package no notice no nothing like it was really uh, walk in the door one day and walk out the the next um, no paycheck I really don't want to dwell too much on that particular experience uh, just largely because I think it's easy to get a bit negative when you're dealing with the uh, kind of traumatic events, so to speak. But that experience really did, in combination with a, a later Death March project in my life, shape my definition for what a Death March project is. The common theme that I saw in all of these is a failure of work-life boundaries. My definition really is, quite simply... A project in which normal work-life boundaries have been substantially violated in favor of work for a majority of the team. The first important uh, distinction there is normal work-life boundaries. So we're not talking about uh, some exaggerated millennial that has some insane uh, degree of desire for freedom. It, it is what your average uh, person off the street would consider a normal boundary between uh, work and, and life. It also has to be substantially violated for a majority of the team. So uh, just one person uh, being a shat on is not going to make a death march project unless that one person is the entire team. It has to be a majority of the team in order to start getting that just horrible foreboding feeling that comes along with these projects. From that... You might notice that there's really kind of two primary causes. And the first is the team itself allowing that work-life balance to be violated. Or in, in general, I would say this almost has to be on a small project, like a single person. So you have perhaps just one person driving uh, the project uh, on themselves and, and causing a failure. So where, where would that come from? And I, I would argue that the failure there is a communication. There can be multiple failures. Uh, one big one that I'm guilty of on a regular basis is volunteering to do unnecessary or unrelated work, uh, basically being the helpful doormat. Another one is not knowing when to say no uh, when people requests kind of come come to you. And that's really related to the last. Accepting trying as a valid request. There is no such thing as trying when you're a professional. You either do something or you do not. If somebody asks if you can do something in an amount of time, and can you try to do it in that amount of time? No, it takes however much time it takes. There, there is no trying. That That's... Uh, that's basically indicative of somebody saying that they do not think that your estimates are meaningful at that point. 
Uh, the next is making accidental or self-imposed deadlines through bad estimates or overpromising. So uh, this kind of comes into your estimate is just way low and maybe there was something unforeseen and you need to communicate uh, to management that that estimate has been extended. The kind of good thing about uh, this situation as far as the deathmatch project goes is that in this case, it is largely on the team or you as an individual to change it. There, there is not a overwhelming force uh, for management being applied. It really does turn into just having to swallow your pride and admit to somebody that uh, you're overworked at this point in time. Now, kind of the downside to that is uh, there's likely a little bit of a failure of leadership there if you are being allowed to work yourself to death like this. I, I know that as somebody in a more senior level role now, I watch out very carefully for younger engineers doing far more than they should. And I see them do it on a regular basis. And it has to be one of those things that uh, more senior level people set aside some time and say, hey, look, dude, you are working yourself to burnout here. This is not healthy, uh, what you're doing, putting in these extra hours. Now, the kind of flip side of that coin is maybe you have leadership that doesn't care that that's going on. And, and that's a really bad thing at that point. Uh, your leadership, if they are willing to take advantage of engineers like that, is not a good leadership and likely to go down the other path uh, or cause of a death march project, which is poor leadership. Um, that is, uh, to me, the most common one. Now, before I discuss poor leadership, I'd like to get a little more in depth about what I mean by these work-life boundaries. Now, th these boundaries can actually take uh, many different forms. Uh, if you are someone who values honesty, as an example, and you want your yes to mean yes and your no to mean no, and you're in a project where there's a degree of secrecy or obfuscation to management going on, or outright lying to management to justify a, uh, an activity, another boundary, uh, the obvious one, is uh, time, your free time, your spare time, and uh, eating into that. You can also look at boundaries as far as uh, your cell phone activity, uh, being on call or not on call. Anyway... Let's go on back to the second uh, major primary cause. Um, and really, I'm kind of creating a bit of a dichotomy here. I'm saying it's either you or the management. A failure of leadership. A and this turns into largely, and, and the big piece of life advice I have here, is don't work for shitbags. Now, shitbag is a term that comes from the military. Basically, it's a worthless person. And... There are a lot of shitbags in the tech community. I think there is a tendency that real talented people do not want to become managers or feel that they are poor managers when they're in that role. And so you end up with less talented people willing to step up um, that are just bad, um, that they are not good, or, or they, they have uh, bad uh, characteristics. 
Now, there's an article I'll link to. It's a blog post on Java Code Geeks about uh, what one particular person thought were the signs of bad managers. And there were a few that I actually highly agreed uh, with them on. I, don't, I won't say I agreed with them all, but there were some themes there. And they're themes I've seen over and over in my career that, that are worth thinking about. And the first major thing that you can see as a symptom of bad manager is secrecy. A manager's job is to filter, not censor. And what do I mean that by? I mean that a manager acting as a good filter will remove the emotion and basically create a situation where communication is actually clarified between upper management and uh, the engineers or, or the, you know, the busy worker bees. That is not censoring. Like, the important distinction there is if management says that we need to have this done by XYZ date or we're going to have to shut down the department, the urgency of that request can be communicated perhaps without the degree of emotion that management might be putting on it, especially if management is prone uh, to hyperbole or exaggeration on that sort of thing. That's not the same as the communication just not coming through at all and the manager or or team lead uh, just kind of giving his own swing on things. Uh, The next item uh, that I I noticed on this list was fear. So a good manager should not be scared of the people that he has working for him. Uh, Generally, the better managers are actually going to seek out people better than themselves. Honestly, that was a fault of mine early on uh, when I became a manager. I, I did not understand that particular role as far as professionals go. Uh, The next uh, kind of thing, not setting clear expectations for feedback, and finally, a oversensitivity to criticism. And again, the point that I would like to make about all of these uh, items is they are potential hotspots for violation of work-life boundaries. So you look at uh, secrecy and management. where you have somebody not communicating well, that can create a a violation of of maybe a a personal moral boundary. A lack of really kind of consideration as far as an employee's time goes. If you're a manager and you view yourself as better than your employees and you do not uh, put in the same amount of time as they do, if you're requesting uh, they work 70 hours a week, and then you're not working 70 hours a week, uh, that's um, that's not uh, being a good manager, and that's not respecting the work-life uh, boundaries of an employee. Uh, communication boundaries as well. I, it Really, it just kind of turns into this thing of uh, really treating people like people, like allowing somebody to have uh, their spare uh, free time and uh, their value centers uh, um, intact through a project. You don't want to lean on somebody or be abusive to them. So let's talk about what I consider work-life boundaries. And, and I kind of really highlighted one, and, and that to me is um, my personal ethical boundaries. I will say, though, that work-life boundaries are a personal thing. So something that might be a hard boundary for me 
uh, might not be a boundary for, for you. So anything I really give as far as guidance of work-life boundaries is going to be particular to my situation and my moral center or my life values or my career goals. But the, the kind of common ones that are worth considering, again, ethics, what are your ethical uh, boundaries and lines? What are you willing to tolerate? And uh, what do you see as um, uh, things that you could not tolerate while working for an employer? Those are things you should be well aware of because you will at some point in your life have to deal with a personal ethical boundary being violated. I have some stories about that, but I'm going to save those for another podcast. The next is personal time. Now, this one gets interesting. Like, what time do you value? You know, perhaps you're like me and really willing to work, you know, pretty much around the clock as long as you get to kind of set your priorities for the extra time you're working so that you can work on something that maybe you find interesting or uh, stimulating and engaging. If you are, say, a football fan and you just really value Sunday football or you're a churchgoer and you really value a morning mass or, or morning service, uh, th- those are boundaries that you should be able to feel comfortable communicating and uh, should not be violated. And if you start having uh, those boundaries violated, you are seeing a sign, a symptom of, or a a direct impact of a death march project. Really, any time, again, by my definition, any time your personal boundaries are being violated in a way that favors uh, not you, but the company or your work, that is symptom or or one of the major qualifiers for a death march project. And if everybody's boundaries are being violated, so everybody on the team uh, feels that they are doing things that they should not be doing or that they are being taken advantage of in some form, if, if that is happening to a majority of team members, then that is, by my definition, a death march project. And I think that definition is a little more useful these days, especially as we have uh, the new thing of the death march scrum. And, and so this is where you see basically uh, the team using agile workflow or scrum workflow and a increasing request for story points or pushing uh, pushing uh, stuff into sprints that really doesn't fit and then stressing out employees on that. In that case, you're seeing a violation of, one, the honesty boundary that, that I have personally, and, and two, uh, time boundaries. So if people are working you know, 20 extra hours, they work a weekend to get a, a, a story done, then they are having their personal uh, boundaries violated. I think that definition actually works really well because now we're not reliant on a sort of project management technique. We can actually identify in an agile system when a death march project is going on, when those metrics that we might have relied on earlier would not be present. I'm going to include uh, two links uh, to articles on setting work-life boundaries and the importance of it. And I really hope uh, people give it some consideration. If you are younger and you are in school and uh, doing schoolwork, 
I see a lot of students these days that are put in situations where they are honestly taught to uh, not have uh, these sorts of boundaries in, in guarding their personal time. If you are a student and you are a senior in high school or you're um, starting out, you know, freshman in college or maybe even further, I would highly recommend that you track your amount of free time and guard it closely and have time that you are dedicating uh, to yourself, to your hobbies, and to uh, rejuvenate. So that is it for this subject on Death March projects. I hope that uh, you have a degree of hope and at least some idea or some game plan of how to proceed if you are either in one or feeling like uh, one is coming your way. Uh, at least perhaps better game plan than simply waving the white flag and jumping to a new gig. Although sometimes that's the best way. Uh, that's indeed what I ended up doing in in that situation. I don't uh, I don't fault anybody that chooses that, especially because a employer will not value you the way you should be valued. Now, next week's podcast, I hope to actually finish up the series on CS topics as far as Bitcoin, blockchain, and Git are concerned, and hopefully get you to a point that you'll be able to have knowledge on how to implement that if you at least have the prerequisite abilities as far as programming goes. Along with that particular series, I'm actually planning on doing a little bit of more of a deep dive into some really cool news in the cryptography front. I'm going to cover a couple papers that were recently published that will have a fairly major impact over the next few years in cryptography. If you are feeling uh, extra nerdy, I'm hoping you'll actually enjoy that. I really struggle to find the right balance between technical and beginner. So if you're somebody that is really technical, I'm hoping that you will find uh, that particular entry in the series uh, really strongly interesting. And if you're a beginner, I'm hoping that you'll at least be able to listen to it and gain a little bit about what is going on in cryptography right now. With that said, this is Zombie Coder, out. Music by Audionautics. This podcast and others available at Stitcher.com or check out just this podcast at TechStuffs.com.